This is episode number 731 with Nell Watson, AI ethics maestro at IEEE. Today's episode is brought to you by Gurobi, the decision intelligence leader. And by CloudWolf, the cloud skills platform. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today's guest, Nell Watson, is absolutely sensational. I've never spoken to someone anywhere near as insightful about where AI is going in the coming decades, and she brings all of it to life with detailed real-world analogies and clever references to literature and pop culture. This sensational guest, Nell, yeah, she works for IEEE, which if you're not aware of this well-known standards body, it stands for the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. And there she works as an AI ethics certification maestro, a role in which she engineers mechanisms into AI systems in order to safeguard trust and safety in algorithms. She also works for Apple as an executive consultant on philosophical matters related to machine ethics and machine intelligence. She's president of, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, EURAIO, E-U-R-A-I-O, which is the European Responsible AI Office. She is renowned and sought after as a public speaker, including at venerable venues like the World Bank and the United Nations General Assembly. And on top of all that, she's currently wrapping up a PhD in engineering from the University of Gloucestershire in the UK. Today's episode covers rich philosophical issues that will be of great interest to hands-on data science practitioners, but the content should be accessible to anyone. And indeed, I do highly recommend that everyone gives this extraordinary episode a listen. In this episode, Nell details the distinct and potentially dangerous new phase of AI capabilities that our society is stumbling forward into. She talks about how you yourself can contribute to IEEE AI standards that can offset AI risks, and how we together can craft regulations and policies to make the most of AI's potential, thereby unleashing a fast-moving second renaissance and potentially bringing about a utopia in our lifetimes. All right, you ready for this glorious episode? Let's go. Now, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. I've known about your work for a long time. It's one of those guests where you're like, I can't believe that they're here on the show. And here you are. Thank you for coming on. Where are you calling in from today? Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure to join you today. I'm coming in from Northern Ireland. Ah, uh, yes. Um, I had uh, the most wonderful uh, full Irish breakfast yesterday here in New York. At a great, there's a there's a pub in downtown Manhattan called the Dead Rabbit, and it's fantastic. They have like they have Irish music, often live Irish music, oh, nice. uh, being performed, and it's one of the it's it was so delicious. I, I I think Irish food is one of the most underrated foods out there. It is so delicious, and um, I heavily overate. It was really the only meal I ate all day. Tons of butter on everything. <laughs> Butter and um, bacon and colk, mm -hmm. you know, seaweed sometimes and spinach and things, all, all good hearty, hearty yeah, grub. For sure. Uh, well, yes. So thank you for calling in. And um, yeah, we have a lot of exciting topics planned for you today. As usual, our researcher Serge Massis has pulled out unbelievable information about you and has we have great questions prepared, topics prepared. And then 
uh, I discovered as we were about to start recording that all of these topics essentially are going to be covered in your forthcoming book. So this is this might be for our listeners the first place that they could hear about it uh, coming out in March 2024. Your book, Taming the Machine, will be published by Kogan Page. So that's exciting. Indeed. Yeah, it's been a real, well, it, it's been a pleasure, honestly, putting putting it all together. <laughs> a challenge, um, for sure, but also a pleasure because many of, of these, these ideas about AI uh, relationships and AI as a tool of demoralization, but then also AI as a tool of of enlightenment, of of leading us to a better future, right? And the problems of of aligning human and AI interests together, all of those are woven into one book, which I'm really happy about, especially because I've gotten to to address issues of AI ethics in a very practical way, but also AI safety. And generally speaking, those are two different domains, and the people in those domains are associated with them don't talk to each other, right? Mm You know, it's it's very rare that you that you come across um, a discussion of the issues in both of those camps. So that's something I'm very very proud to to manage to weave together in taming the machine. Yeah, could you delineate those like kind of formally for us? AI ethics and AI safety. Yeah. So AI ethics is all about making technology which is more fair and more robust where we can gain more transparency into systems to understand what they're doing and for whom and fulfilling what purpose. And that transparency enables us to understand what kinds of biases might be built into the system. And we know that those biases can be catastrophic. We've seen the example of the Horizon Post Office system, which was an algorithmic management technology that was monitoring workers in the UK Postal Service. And it turns out that you know dozens of people were wrongfully sent uh, to jail because of that system, right? You know, and people's lives were, were destroyed. In fact, there's hundreds of unsafe convictions. The courts are still sorting through it all. Oh my goodness. That is, that is an instance that I wasn't aware of, actually. Yeah, but but it, these things keep happening. Um, for example, in the Netherlands, there was the Dutch child benefit scandal, whereby, again, a a fraud detection mechanism was uh, employed to um, detect benefit fraud, and it disproportionately affected a whole bunch of people whose first nationality was not Dutch. And, uh, you know, people almost lost their children and all kinds of harrowing things, and it actually brought down the Dutch government. Yeah, 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 that I remember. That was Resigned in, in disgrace, actually. Yeah. And... You know that that those are indicative of of the problems of managing all kinds of issues with machines and giving them too much trust, no uh, accountability, right? And so, weaving in accountability into these systems, we can understand if something went wrong, why, what were the predicates, or what were the conditions that led to that happening, and so we can put it right again. It's a little bit like Jet air travel in the 1950s, when you had to, you know, say a few hail marys before you got on that thing, because, you know, it was exciting, but but also very dangerous because we hadn't created the procedures and the knowledge necessary to shake down 
that whole industry. And AI is going through a similar phase at the moment. Great analogy. So that's all issues of AI ethics. And of course, we've got privacy as well, which is a really big issue in machine learning because these systems are able to cross-correlate different kinds of information, little, little pots of info. It's kind of like a connect-the-dot picture, right? Like, like children play with, where if you have one or two dots connected, it doesn't tell you anything, but you get a few more and suddenly the picture starts to emerge. Thankfully, we're starting to get technologies which enable us to do machine learning on even encrypted forms of data, like homomorphic encryption, zero-knowledge proofs, federated learning, etc. And I think just as we needed to develop SSL, you know, secure sockets layer, the little padlock in your browser, before we could do like online banking and things safely, you would never do your online banking today without something like that. We're going to have to implement similar kinds of security mechanisms into AI before you know these things are truly ready for, for prime time. But we're getting there quickly. And now we have a lot of different standards and certifications that we can then weave into the mix as well. So that's the AI safety bundle. Now, a lot of people who are interested in AI safety um, sorry, AI ethics, rather. A lot of people who are interested in AI ethics tend to poo-poo um, AI safety. Now, AI safety is all about trying to make machines which understand our preferences or understand our values and which are aligned with our actual goals, right? There's, there's this old story of the monkey's paw. and I'll, I'll briefly reiterate it, but it's about a couple who find a monkey's paw in an old antique shop, and they're warned that it carries a deadly curse, but they use it anyway. Uh, it has three wishes, and they, the first wish is that they wish for 200 pounds, which is a lot of money like 120 years ago. Um, and they get their wish, but it turns out that their, their son has been killed in an accident at his workplace, and the 200 pounds is actually the insurance money that they get. Um, and then, you know, they, they, they realize what a terrible thing has happened. And so they bring their son back to life again. But the problem is that he's now a sort of shambling revenant, right? He's not what they expected to get back. But it was the, the letter of the thing, but not the spirit. Mm -hmm. And so then they, they use the third and final wish to basically send the son back to, back to his grave. And it's a cautionary tale of AI because AI will often give us what we think we want, but not what we actually need. Or it will interpret our goals in a very simplistic way and sometimes not even fulfill those goals, but actually end up optimizing for some sort of shortcut mm -hmm. that fulfills... Yeah, exactly. Reward hacking or specification gaming, indeed. And so these are, these are real issues. And it, it used to be kind of an abstract or academic thing. But now we're starting to see real agentized models out in real life that are actually doing these, these, these phenomena, right? So we know that it's no longer just an academic exercise. This is happening, and it's going to keep happening. 
And so that's what AI safety is, is all about. It's about trying to understand these very difficult problems so that we can align human and AI interests together and continue to work with machines even as they grow in capability and perhaps even eclipse our capabilities uh, altogether. Problem is that people in AI ethics say, stop focusing on this you know, future stuff. Uh, we need to, to look at the here and now because there's actual real people being harmed by these AI systems, which is, you know, it's an understandable point. Vice versa, you've got the AI safety people who say, you know, shut up about like some algorithm being racist. We're trying to save the world here, right? Mm. Um, and the thing is that both perspectives have a lot of value to them and both are very important. And unfortunately, those two camps don't always see eye to eye. They don't always recognize the value and necessity of both of their perspectives and both of the um, sets of wisdom that they, that they bring to the mix. And that's why I'm so happy to include both of those elements of AI in one, one tome, because very often people end up in one bucket and they don't reach out to the other one. Garobi Optimization recently joined us to discuss how you can drive decision-making, giving you the confidence to harness provably optimal decisions. Trusted by 80% of the world's leading enterprises, Garobi's cutting-edge optimization solver, lightweight APIs, and flexible deployment simplify the data-to-decision journey. Garobi offers a wealth of resources for data scientists, webinars like a recent one on using Garobi in Databricks. They provide hands-on training, notebook examples, and an extensive online course. Visit garobi.com slash SDS for these resources and exclusive access to a competition illustrating optimization's value with prizes for top performers. That's G-U-R-O-B-I.com slash SDS. And I am no expert in AI ethics or AI safety, but I've heard from, so we've had another expert on the show. His name is Jeremy Harris. Um, and he most recently was in an episode number 668. So that was... Right after GPT-4 came out, I did an episode with him on uh, AI policy and alignment uh, of GPT-4. And I listened to his, so he hosts a podcast called Last Week in AI, uh, co-hosts it. And it's like a news roundup of the last week's news. Um, it's intended for, you, know, you don't need to be a technical listener. Um, our show, I think, caters a little bit more towards technical hands-on data scientists, machine learning engineers. Their show is like AI news, everything that's kind of happened last week. Um, and so I love listening to it. I listen to, I never miss an episode, uh, cause it helps me stay up to date on everything that's going on. But, uh, Jeremy, um, has said that, uh, from, from his understanding and from his perspective, that the interesting thing about these two issues you're describing, AI safety, AI ethics, how the AI safety, um, is more concerned with like the future state, like alignment, AGI, um, and the AI ethics is more present and it's, you know, how is this leading to uh, the kinds of atrocities that you mentioned in the UK and the Netherlands today? Um, un, you know, unfairness, for example. Um, the interesting thing from Jeremy's perspective and something that he advises the US and Canadian uh, federal governments on is that the solutions appear to be the same. That a lot of the time, the same solutions work for both. So we can be solving today's problems well, also, um, it seems like potentially averting catastrophe in the future. Does Absolutely. That, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean that's that's it's it's a very astute observation and it's absolutely correct because you know, if you get better at value alignment, then there's fewer misapprehensions of the machine, right? It's it's less likely to misinterpret what somebody says or does in a way that is is unfair, right? I mean, all of us ourselves or maybe a friend has posted something innocuous on Facebook or whatever and you know the, the dreaded algorithm comes and says like you know this this thing that you've written is is problematic in some way right you maybe you're talking about a chess game and then suddenly you know you're talking like black versus white or something and it's like oh this is racist right, right. or you know maybe you went to scunthorpe college right but of course the, the word scunthorpe has a rather rude four letter word buried within it. And so a simplistic <laughs> uh, algorithm that's that's scrubbing out spam or whatever mm-hmm. is means that your resume isn't gonna be isn't gonna be seen by someone, right? You just went to Shorp University. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So these are these are, are are pressing issues, you know? And similarly, if you get AI ethics in order, you should have much stronger transparency into those systems, right? So you better understand what they're doing, in what way, um, to whose benefit, and all of that stuff will help you with AI alignment. So absolutely, I completely agree that they are mutually reinforcing and both very important. You know, in fact, I'd even say that they're like two columns forming into an arch and that they need to be um, built up in a similar way to to reach a, a nice goal of stable foundation for the future. Your knack for analogies, as well as bringing up very specific instances to illustrate everything you're talking about so far has been mesmerizing. I'm really loving this episode so far. Thank you, Dale. Thank you. Um, So uh, in March, you were one of the people that signed the open letter that called for a moratorium on AI development for six months, I think it was. So Elon Musk, uh, Steve Wozniak, Joshua Bengio, these were some of the other signatories and then you wrote an article to follow that up called When Moving Fast Could Break the World that explained your decision to sign that open letter. So yeah, uh, maybe you kind of <laughs> break that down for us, uh, you know, break down kind of a summary of that article. And it also, is it related, is is that concept related to Mark Zuckerberg's Move Fast and Break Things that he popularized? Indeed, yeah. I'm sort of paraphrasing that, you know. Move, move fast and break things is fine. Um, until like your next model, your GPT-5 or 6 or whatever, might literally break the world, right? Because with every new major milestone in terms of scaling these systems, new capabilities emerge, and we cannot predict those in advance. Like, we don't know what's going to come out the other side. It's a roll of the dice. And, you know, you could end up with some model that is highly agentized, uh, that, that is able to make all kinds of um, self-oriented decisions about things. Goodness knows there's a small chance, but it's possible you might even create something that's actually um, sentient to some degree, in which case it might suffer. And in fact, it's, its suffering potentially could be very profound, right? You know, that's that's another major ethical risk of these systems. So. We need to be cautious. And unfortunately, the moment that, that ChatGPT reached a million users in 
you know, basically a matter of hours, um, everybody realized that, I mean, I've been waiting for the other shoe to drop, frankly, with, <laughs> with regard to generative AI. I knew that the Sputnik moment was, was going was gonna to drop, but everybody realized that there was suddenly an arms race in order to, to develop these models and make use of them. And unfortunately, all the big tech companies, with one or two exceptions, they let go of all of their AI ethics people. The, the teams that were supposed to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, or have you considered such and such, or hmm, there might be a better way of doing such and such, right? They let go of them all. They were fired. And that shows that the industry hasn't been ready to self-regulate, right? Like there's no intention of self-regulating because the, the industry doesn't want any kind of speed bump along the way. And that's a real, a real problem. For me, honestly, that was the moment where I personally realized that uh, stepping on the speed brake to some degree would be a good idea. Now, that's not to say that it's the best idea. Um, there are, of course, many caveats. I don't think that stepping on the speed brake is going to be something that um, the whole world is going to agree to. Um, it might potentially enable parties that uh, defect from that kind of global moratorium idea. Um, it might even potentially be counterproductive in the sense that it might be crying wolf to be super worried about AI safety now and not in three or five years where we're really, really starting to freak out. Like now we're starting to get a bit worried, but we're not panicking, right? But we might be panicking. But if we've sort of cried wolf too much by that point, then actually it might be really impossible to step on the brakes at that later, even more critical juncture. So I do have a lot of caveats about this idea of a moratorium. But honestly, the speed of development and, and acceleration of these technologies, especially with regard to eliciting latent agency out of models through scaffolding, you know, things like auto GPT and um, those similar kinds yeah. of baby AGI. Um, exactly. Exactly. And chaos GPT and other kinds of mechanisms as well. Now we're starting to see things like chat dev, um, I think MetaGPT as well, um, which can not just create agents and those agents, you know, delegating tasks to other ones, but to create entire corporations. So you have a department that's, you know, doing design, you have one that's doing uh, implementation, another department doing QA, and another department doing marketing, and then there's some sort of nominal boss of them all. And all of these little personas are working together to to come at a problem from multiple different angles, you know? That's, you know, really unprecedented. So it's, it's not just that, that this stuff is, is cool and exciting, but that it's gonna have an impact on our entire economy. It's gonna have an impact on our, our entire society, especially once we start to have ongoing relationships or interpersonal relationships with these machines, right? 
you know, we've gone from the, the age of classifying AI to the age of generative AI. The next wave is going to be that interpersonal relational thing where it's able to follow up with you and say, hey, you know, you told me you had a bad back on Monday. Uh, how are you doing? Like, are you feeling better? Or how was your day? You know, oh, you went to the park. That's nice. Did you see any nice things there? Did you see a friend? Those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be a really, really impactful uh, new development because we become the average of the five people closest to us, say, right? That old Jim Rohn quote. And so if one of those or two of those even is machines, we're going to inexorably change our values and our perceptions of the world on a subconscious level closest, closer to those machines, right? And whoever sets the agenda or, or applies the values to those machines as well is going to have tremendous downstream influence on the world. Of course, these kinds of relationships with machines can be super normal stimuli. They can be things that are beyond normal reality in terms of their, uh, in terms of their seductive power, right? For example, over in Australia, they have this species of beetle called the jewel beetle. And it has a really big shiny back on it. And they discovered that this beetle was dying off. And they didn't know why. They thought it might be pollution or something. And it was pollution to a degree, but not like chemicals. It was pollution in the form of these stubby brown beer bottles that people would drink and throw them in the bush. Oh. And they were so shiny and so round that they looked like a perfect beetle butt, right? They had the shiny carapace. And so the beetles were humping the beer bottles and not each other. And that's why they were dying off, right? Because the beer bottle was a super normal stimulus. It was a stimulus that was beyond anything that a beetle would normally encounter. And we live in a world of those super normal stimuli, whether it's, you know, porn that gives you, you know, a thousand virtual partners in an afternoon, if you wish, right? Or hamburgers, you know, which, you know, you've got meat, you've got fat, you've got starch, you've got the whole thing like in one, in one bundle, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's nothing more engaging than a treasured relationship because those relationships are the things that make you come home at the end of the day, right? to see your spouse, your kid, your dog, et cetera, right? And if you're having a, a cherished relationship with an AI system, that's going to lead us in all kinds of different directions mm -hmm. and interrupt how we interact even with other humans, right? And how we, we are interested in other human beings, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So all of these things are going to have knock-on major knock-on effects yeah. on our entire society there's all kinds of complexity and this does not seem this concern does not seem far off at all i mean we are now uh, it's it's there's there's got to be people there's got there's i suspect there is a and i don't know any personally yet or no one's talked to me about it yet but i suspect that there are enough of these kinds of systems well developed enough to do what you're describing that that Spike Jones her like moment, <laughs> um, and so for listeners that aren't aware that it's a film <laughs> where uh, a character played by Joaquin Phoenix, I'm probably butchering his name, Joaquin, uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Thank you. 
Um, he yeah falls in love with an AI assistant early on, and 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 yeah doesn't end up having relationships with other humans. Like it it you know deep relationships with other humans because it's just such a fulfilling relationship. And and so it is interesting how that is going to make a huge impact. I'm sure it is starting to make an impact already today. Obviously not as um, advanced as we saw in that fictionalization that came out a few years ago in that film, Her, but that the systems are, you know, the, the conversations that I have with GPT-4 myself, which are, you know, just about, you know, suggest corrections to this email. It isn't the ongoing iteration that you're describing, which was, you know, how's your bag? Is it feeling better? How was your trip to the park? I don't have that with GPT-4 today, but even just my, you know, would you mind correcting this email? It is so positive <laughs> that I, I really enjoy those interactions. It's like, yeah, you did a great job on this email. Uh, you know, the first part was good. I really like the ending. In the middle, there's a couple things we could work on. Here are some suggestions. And the suggestions are so great and so incisive. And I'm like, wow. Like, I often write back, even though there's no point, because it's the end of the conversation. I don't right. have another question. But I feel compelled, often, to just write, this was great. Thank you so much. Absolutely the same. I do the same. You know, <laughs> sometimes I really wish that it had a tip jar or I could somehow <laughs> buy it a beer, you know? Right. Like just just to say thank you because it's been it's been so useful, you know. GPT four, I've got these brown beer bottles. I'm going to be hanging out with them <laughs> later on if you want to come by. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, so I, I think this is happening. This is happening, and as these systems become even better, as as uh, I haven't actually personally used character AI myself yet. Oh, it yeah. seems to be kind of a bit more in that direction. You probably dabbled in that. Um, can you actually, can you, maybe you can give us kind of, cause it's, this is, so it's very popular with younger people. So, uh, the same kind of people who love TikTok, people in their early twenties, people in their teens, they love character AI to the extent that the fact that despite me and people in my peer group, uh, barely, you know, we're not that much older, but I, you know, I hadn't heard of it until there was an article a couple of weeks ago, uh, showing how, uh, with people under 20 or under 24 or something, it is approaching popularity to chat.openai.com uh, in terms of usage. And it is kind of a step in this direction, isn't it? Where you can you can create, they can be fictional characters, or they can be based on real life people, and they, the characters interact with each other in, uh, as well as with people, or I don't know, you can, you can explain it, you know it better than me. That's right, that's right. We're now starting to enter an age of these kinds of persona-driven models, you know, where you can have an interaction that's perhaps modeled on a real person, or it might be um, something that one, you know, rolls something custom. But these these interactions are often they're often very funny. You know, um, I, I often play with language models. Sometimes testing them by by saying something very rude or very insulting. You know, um, just to see what the response is. And it's very interesting because based on the different persona, you get a different, a different kind of kind of answer. And that's actually quite indicative of, of the underlying personality of that bot and how cohesive it is when it when it 
is given a stimulus which is kind of out of left field, right? When it's a little bit out of distribution, a little bit from, from what, what it might be expecting. And, you know, these AI personas, like I said, they're, they're forming little companies potentially to do things like, like create video games. Um, or they're also forming communities. And those communities are basically like playing kind of a Farmville or Stardew Valley kind of thing with they do each that other. In character.ai, this is they do that. Yeah, right. So, but but they're, you know, they right. have their own little little rhythms. They get up, they just, you know, they, they meet each other. They have right. little parties for Valentine's Day and things like that. Oh my In goodness. many ways, it's it's almost like the dawn of an AI civilization. Right. And that's where we go beyond the interpersonal relational AI. We go into the sort of the corporate AI, where it's a legion of different personas working together, and that legion then produces a product for you or creates new culture, maybe, right? If that right. civilization has its own culture. And we're starting to see these kinds of cultural dynamics actually interplay with these models and how they, they work with each other. Um, one is, of the problems of these models is actually that they're too polite to each other. Um, right. <laughs> they need a little, <laughs> little bit of uh, a few few holes uh, in the mix to, you know, just, just spice it up a little bit, maybe. <laughs> Data science and machine learning jobs increasingly demand cloud skills, with over 30% of job postings listing cloud skills as a requirement today, and that percentage set to continue growing. Thankfully, Kirill and Atle, who have taught machine learning to millions of students, have now launched CloudWolf to efficiently provide you with the essential cloud computing skills. With CloudWolf, commit just 30 minutes a day for 30 days and you can obtain your official AWS certification badge. Secure your career's future. Join now at cloudwolf.com SDS for a whopping 30% membership discount. Again, that's cloudwolf.com SDS to start your cloud journey today. That's that's wild. I hadn't stretched that far into the, into the future, but it doesn't seem like it's something that far off. You could it is it is very much within reach. It could even be again. It's the kind of thing that I'm like. There's probably some small percentage of people who are already having these kinds of experiences where you can imagine that corporation that you're describing, this community of AI systems. They could come. It's like the way that there was a Bauhaus community decades ago. They could create artificial agents could be like, wow, like this, uh, you know, this kind of art or this kind of music is like really interesting. And, and humans may or may not agree, <laughs> um, but maybe some humans will, maybe that doesn't matter <laughs> uh, whether humans do or not. And um, yeah, and they just kind of go off on their own, their own trends. And that is that is wild. That is really interesting. Um, and that's gonna have that's gonna have an impact on on our human culture, right? Right, right, because right. These, exactly. These these tastes or these aesthetics, etc., are going to be created by these AI civilizations, which you know continue to grow in their their power and capability. And that's going to take humanity on a wild ride, especially because. We're kind of in a cultural doldrum at the moment, you know. Um, a lot of a lot of our culture has become increasingly formulaic 
and bland and kind of driven by companies that uh, are just looking at the bottom line and they're like, mm-hmm. okay, well, this is a safe thing. So we're just going to replicate it again. We're going to make the exact yeah. same movie or yeah. we're going to make basically the exact same video game, but we're going to yeah. put it in a slightly different, slightly different time period or something. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think there's the opportunity then for AI to step in with this kind of wild card for humanity to give us things that we perhaps haven't even considered before um, and launch a kind of uh, a, a creative, creative renaissance, perhaps. And it could also be on and it could be personalized, which is oh, really yeah. wild to think, you know, why why have a blockbuster film that's the same for everyone? Like, you know, I love Baroque music. And if you, you know, you could take, you know, roughly the same story and make it in a Baroque era with Baroque composer characters. And I'd be like, wow, this sounds like something, a historical drama is perfect for me. And someone else might be like, you know, they want the steampunk version uh, and where, yeah, I mean, there's no reason. I don't know why I'm tethering it. I guess it's just kind of it makes it easier for me to imagine that there's some kind of like, you know, underlying tethering of some, some somehow underlying story. But in mine, in the Baroque era one, it's all, you know, it's all about composing classical music and all the characters have different names and different dialogues. And then somehow the same story plays out in the future in steampunk. Uh, but actually, yeah. I'm just, I'm just, I'm tethering it to that. It's got to have the same kind of underlying th- theme because it's easier for me to understand that or to imagine how a machine could do it. But there's no reason why it has to be that way. It could be completely freeform. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And the other thing is that, is that this can be harnessed uh, through biofeedback, right? Right. So that every little frisson of enjoyment or engagement that, that is lit up uh, on your face is, is seen by the system. It's, it's witnessed and it's, it's, it's recording these little things so it can, give yeah. you super normal jollies, right? It can yeah. dial up the like whoa factor, right? Um, because today we have we have algorithms like uh, I think it's uh, Eulerian movement magnification, for example, that can um, amplify tiny, tiny movements of blood flow through the human face, right? Mm-hmm. And from that, you can generate health metrics, you can generate beats per minute, you can generate blood pressure, et cetera. And so we have really, really sophisticated ways of, of monitoring, even without direct contact with someone, just through a camera. We can monitor all kinds of things about what they're feeling or what their, um, their body is doing. And if you get something like a smartwatch or an AirPod or something, then you can pull in galvanicity and other kinds of uh, data that's going to give you very, very strong biofeedback mechanisms for sure. Yeah. And so something that I'm so glad that you went to that level of detail, I almost interrupted you before you went into the biofeedback thing, it, but it ties into perfectly with the next thought that I had, which is that, mm. so, I mean, it could be as dramatic as the, the film that you're having made for you in real time that you're watching. Uh, starts to notice that you're starting to drowse off. And so it just kind of, it turns into like a bit of a lull. Like you're just looking at the Irish countryside while uh, Gaelic instruments are played and it kind of just, nothing in the plot really changes. And it's just this kind of nice scene that goes on for a 20 minute nap that you're kind of, you're, you're kind of drowsing in and out. And then as you start to come back to attention, it like returns to the pub 
and the the story, you know, the plot can kind of continue on. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and now now consider that it's it's no longer a movie, but it's it is an actual virtual pub that you're sitting in. Right. Right. Of course. Oh, of course. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah. So you're in your AR goggles or your VR goggles and yeah. And yeah, and you could potentially also, you could have uh, a friend from anywhere in the world or whatever, who's also there in that virtual pub. And you could be kind of watching drama unfold uh, in front of you. Some of these people that you're sitting at the pub table with could be other humans and other, and some could be AI and you're not even really aware or you, you lose track of, you know, which ones are humans, which ones are AI. And there's like, you know, it's just kind of like chatting at the pub, but there's the AI systems are particularly good at remembering conversation that you had with them and bringing those points up. You know, it's like this person that is, you know, exactly your type physically is like, Hey, like, you know, exactly. Saying, like that back pain that you had last week when we were at all at the pub together, how's that going? Like, and that, you know, the difficult person at work, like, is that getting any better? Like last week when, when we left it off, you told me X, Y, and Z. And, you know, since then I was thinking <laughs> that maybe, you know, a great way to tackle it would be this. Have you tried that? Uh, and yeah, wild, wild, wild. And all the while kind of around this, uh, around this, this, you know, the bar at the pub or whatever, there's, you know, other, your, your human friends or whatever other AIs they're having, you know, there's dramatic things going on. Like someone comes in and like, there's been a fire, <laughs> go outside and like, have a look and or whatever. Have you heard the rumors about that one AI asshole that finally got <laughs> programmed? <laughs> uh, let's gossip about him. You know, it's yeah. Wild, wild, wild. Sorry, I'm really going off on a tangent here, but it all seems so within reach. And I yeah. hadn't thought about it in this level of detail before. So sorry that I'm kind of indulging myself. Yeah, that's 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 what supernormal looks like, you know? And as you said, it's 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 custom created to you to be the most engaging, rapturous kind of experience, you know? I mean, it's people have all kinds of like all kinds of engagements with physical characters, you know, and like really idolize someone or or that kind of thing. And then imagine that instead you're able to have a conversation with them in situ. Like suddenly you're you're in your own, you know, Star Trek episode as a red shirt or something, you know? Right. Um you're you're on the the, the the, the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon or whatever, you know, like right. you're really in it and you're able to not just watch those beloved right. characters, but actually interact with them, get a pat on the back from them, you know, of course, that's going to be irresistible. Yeah. 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 And then you can have, it can kind of, it can be made easy for you by things like data from the Star Trek, the next generation series or the computer where it's like, you're like, you, you have no idea how to solve the mission, but you can kind of, it's like asking for cheat codes. You're like, well, you know, what would you do in this scenario data? Yeah, give me some ideas. <laughs> and then you're Precisely. like, all right. <laughs> and you can kind of end up, you know, getting, even though you don't really have experience at the Starship Enterprise, you can end up successfully navigating it and solving missions 
Exactly, because yeah. because you know a good DM, a good dungeon master, mm. weaves those kind of things in, right? If if right. The, if somebody's having a lot of difficulty, or alternatively, if something is too trivial, you know, they'll they'll throw people for a loop, um, or throw them a bone in order to try and keep things moving along at a reasonable mm. pace, and that's something yes. that AI is going to get very very good at doing very soon. As we often discuss on air with guests, deep learning is the specific technique behind nearly all of the latest AI and machine learning capabilities. If you've been eager to learn exactly how deep learning works, my book, Deep Learning Illustrated, is the perfect place to start. Physical copies of Deep Learning Illustrated are available in seven languages, but you can also access it digitally via the O'Reilly Learning Platform. Within O'Reilly, you'll find not only my book, but also more than 18 hours of corresponding video tutorials if video's your preferred mode of learning. If you don't already have access to O'Reilly via your employer or school, you can use our code SDSPOD23 to get a free 30-day trial. That's SDSPOD23. We've got a link in the show notes. Wild. All right, so we could obviously just kind of go deeper and deeper on this <laughs> indefinitely. It's super interesting. Um, and yeah, it's going to be, I guess as one kind of like final thought is it's going to be very, it's going to be very interesting as we, of course we, you know, people get these personal relationships with the, with the AI systems that seem to be, yeah, that, you know, that's super normal that ends up being, potentially so much more rewarding than our human interactions. It, it poses risk to society in one particularly interesting way that I could see that being evocative is with like, you know, if we have enough recordings of our loved ones that have passed, having a compelling emulation, a super normal emulation that might even be better where it's like, you know, the things that, <laughs> that used to kind of rub you the wrong way about that person, they're gone. And it's just all the things that you liked about that past loved one or yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be very, very absorbing, very dangerous. It could be, you know, people. Yeah. Yeah. You could, I, I'm sure today, I'm sure today that with these kinds of things, the way you describe character AI, I'm going to have to check that out. We also, I realized we had a, a sponsor of the podcast a few months back called with feeling.ai, which is trying to do this similar kind of thing where you could, you could, um, you could provide your preferences to a chatbot things you like, things you dislike that it remembers and it keeps bringing those up. So people, so this is obviously, this is happening. People are doing this and it's, and as people become more engaged with those kinds of systems than they do with normal life, normal relationships, more and more, as that happens more and more. Yeah. 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 Some dangerous things ahead. Um, so you are a, an AI ethics certification maestro. Um, I don't know if this is the kind of thing that ends up uh, coming under your purview at IEEE, but to kind of bring this big future wild discussion to and kind of ground it to the present, what, what does this involve to be like, you know, this is to be the chair of several key working groups at IEEE, um, you know, being considered with AI ethics, yeah, what does this role involve? How do you try to bring about the best that AI has to offer? You know, these really cool things that work because a lot of what 
it's, it's wild that everything we just described is so scary because it's so cool. Mm. <laughs> so like, how do you strike that balance in what you do professionally? And also, you know, is, with your work as an executive consultant philosopher, philosopher at Apple, which is a fascinating role in and of itself. And I realize you can't go into Apple is famously secretive. And so you probably can't go into too much of what exactly you're doing there. But um, these like these rules, they seem to whether it's IEEE, which is interested in standards for lots of organizations, or Apple, which of course is interested in building the best products, many of which incorporate AI. It's these organizations are trying to bring about as much of the cool stuff, the capabilities as possible without <laughs> wrecking society. Um, Cause that's ultimately going to be bad for their bottom line. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, that's something that I think is, is very important to impress upon corporations uh, or organizations in general is that the branding fundamentally is all about trust, right? That's, that's what a brand really entails. You, you know, you, you, you're searching for a, a USB thumb drive on, a, on Amazon or something, right? You know, do you go for the one with the really weird name that looks like some sort of dodgy off brand? You know, or do you go for a well-known brand that you, you know, recognize and, and therefore, you know, have faith in? Essentially, relationships are all about trust as well, because people don't do business with companies necessarily, especially in the business-to-business -business world. They do business with people. Similarly, when people leave companies as employees, generally it's not because they didn't like the company, but because they didn't like the manager, right? And so if we can establish better trust in systems and the organizations behind them and the people that are implementing those systems, that has a very fundamental impact on the bottom line of that company because of that increased sense of trust. The other thing to bear in mind is that we're going through an increasing time of moral panic and it, it, it's, it's only begun and it's going to grow and grow once uh, people start to become increasingly freaked out about AI capabilities, its impact upon the economy, et cetera, its impact upon society at large. And people are going to demand that regulators come down and come down hard, and they will. And that's going to destroy a heck of a lot of different business models overnight. And if, you, if one has done a little bit of work in implementing standards or certifications for more safer and more ethical technologies, one is going to be in a much, much better position to withstand that kind of onslaught. So putting all of these things in order is a great way to make an enterprise much, much more robust and also investable. And that's why I'd recommend that organizations consider prioritizing ethics and safety when working, especially with generative AI. I can see, you know, without obviously getting into any Apple stuff, you know, behind the scenes, it is they are huge on this trust and privacy thing. And so mm. it must be a great, uh, I, I, I imagine it's a great place to, to be working on these kinds of things, thinking about these kinds of things there, because it seems like more than any other uh, big tech company out there. Um, yeah, that is, that is fundamental. I mean, it's a, even I just, 
uh, at the time of recording, got a new iPhone and, and was setting it up. And I'm reminded every time I get a new iPhone that Apple considers privacy to be a fundamental human right. And I even, you know, they're presenting that to me as I'm just setting up the phone, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, it's, um, I don't know. I do, I do really trust that brand a lot. Um, and, uh, yeah, but anyway, the, the IEEE stuff. So when you're working with, uh, you know, this, this international body that's trying to come up with standards, um, what kinds of things are you working on? I know you have, uh, this P7001, um, proposal that you've co-authored. Um, and that's a proposed standard for transparency. Uh, that's, um, that's been released. That's, that's oh, been, been released, released a while. Now. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's quite a comprehensive standard about improving transparency in, uh, in different autonomous uh, systems. So understanding at multiple different levels, how a system functions, you know, what it's doing and for whom, etc. Um, I also have another standard, which is hopefully going to come out relatively soon, uh, called 3152. And that's all about understanding whether you're dealing with a human or a machine or some combination, right? Because very often we're having interactions online or even on the telephone now, which, you know, plausibly could be a human or a machine, especially because voice Synthesis, replication technology, etc., is getting very sophisticated. And sometimes even we have hybridization of agency. So you might have a robot which is currently being steered for some sort of last mile problem. It's being steered or overseen by a human being, right? And so, you know, you might happily uh use the bathroom with the robot about because it's just a machine, but then suddenly there's somebody who has remotely uh, wired into it. And there have been incidences where robots or even autonomous vehicles like cars have filmed people in their own house, nude, or even sitting on the toilet. And then people are like WhatsApping these images to each other, etc., which is awful, awful, awful. Um... We, uh, we should be very cautious about how we invite these technologies into our domestic environment, as an aside. Another form of, of hybridized human and AI agency is where you might have a human who is saying something, but basically they've got an earpiece and they're simply parroting what is actually coming from a machine, right? Or you might have a salesperson and this sort of AI Cyrano de Bergerac is whispering in their ear, close the deal, you know? Um, we, should, we should be made aware as far as possible the kinds of interactions that we're having and what kinds of machine or human agency is mixed up with those. So, for example, that's, that 3152 is a standard to, uh, to label those interactions so that we always know who or what we're dealing with. Yeah. So yeah. So that's a really cool. And so that does that end up being so? Do these have like a so the AI transparency? It's P seven thousand and one. Is this P thirty one fifty two or it's just thirty one fifty two? The P stands for provisional. So I think once it's released, uh, actually it loses the P. I gotcha. Okay. That's right. But 
But what I, what I love about working with the IEEE is that all of these these working groups that come together to to form standards or or certifications for that matter, it's very grassroots. Like anybody can can come and participate if they're interested. They might be an individual. They might be representing a company. Um, but you know everybody's welcome to just join and 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 muck in. And I love that. In fact, anybody can propose a standard as well. Like if you've spotted a problem, there's a gap, it's not being addressed, you know, present it. You can draw up a little document. It's about four or five pages. It's, it's even, uh, it's, it's kind of a boilerplate. So, you know, you can bash it out in an hour or two and then you present it uh, virtually. And if people dig it, then you've got your own working group, you know? Wow. And I, I love that. I love that it's it's um, it's so easy and so accessible to to come together to solve these problems, you know. And I imagine that's something that ability for anyone to be able to submit this four to five page submission. That's probably something easy for me to find the link and put in the show notes. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so I, uh, I I guess just something that maybe you could walk us through is a bit more of that process and what it's like being at the IEEE, like, you know, whether it's a completely distributed organization or whether there's conferences or like how kind of from beginning to end. So like now we have an idea of how a standard can come up. Anyone can submit a four to five page submission. And then if, uh, if enough, I mean, yeah, even, even the process of like who then, who then is reviewing it and how do you get the, like a vote or how do you decide that like, okay, we're going to make a working group. We're going to allocate some resources to this. Like, I guess kind of walk us through uh, how the IEEE works and how you get from and how someone can, you know, a listener can have an idea for something sure. that, you know, maybe we should have a certification for and just like walk all the way through to it being the P being dropped. <laughs> right. Right. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's a relatively straightforward process in the sense that if you have an idea that you want to, to bring, you create this, this PAR, I think it's a project authorization request. You basically briefly write up what you want to, to solve and, and for whom. And, uh, and then it goes to, uh, goes to a, a rev review process. And, you know, then hopefully it's, it's accepted and you can uh, find, find a group of people to work on it with you. You don't even necessarily have to chair it yourself. You can find somebody else, um, perhaps, to, to help you with that. That's, that's also completely fine. Then there's a number of, of meetings will be held to discuss how to put this document together. And there's a lot of hand-holding along the way. Like There's a lot of support from the organization with regards to um, you know, just aspects of, of the administration of the thing and how to put things together. There's a little bit of learning as well with regards to how to hold meetings in a way that adhere to a couple of rules about, uh, you know, general fairness, um, making sure that not any one party kind of dominates the, the creation of the process, that, those, those kinds of things. And once the document has been Produced to a reasonable standard, then it can be submitted for ballot, which is basically a peer review process. And then, uh, hopefully, then it's it's accepted. You get some comments, 
you fulfill those and then it's out the door. It's out in the world where people can, can access it. And in fact, there's something called IEEE's GET program that I really recommend people check out because uh, the GET program enables you to get things completely free. It's gratis. It's pro bono. It's a whole bunch of different ethical standards to, to basically raise the bar, right? To, to, to raise the, the baseline standard of, of how we, we work with machine learning and data science. And they're adding new standards and certifications to that bundle all the time. So I can't recommend it enough. I'm delighted that, that we have this resource uh, for the whole world to, to benefit from now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, so then once the certification exists, like the, the 7001 AI transparency uh, standard that you co-authored or the 3152, um, are you dealing with a human or machine standard uh, that you co-authored? How then can an organization then, like they, you actually get certified by IEEE? Like you're like, you demonstrate, I guess it's kind of like an ISO kind of certification when you have like a factory where you're like, you know, we have these certain, you know, that's right. we, we meet the standards. And then so, so then I guess that's ultimately in the end, that's how IEEE supports itself and, and does all these things that are free, all this handholding to help create standards. The IEEE is like, so they'll, they collect some fee for providing the certificate and maybe that certificate is, is um, certified for a few years and then you renew or something like that. Essentially. Yes. Yes, so there are there are independent orgs around the world that can assist if there are um, if there are some processes to go through in order to to achieve a standard or a certification. Um, but an, another thing is that not everything has to be a standard per se. A lot of a lot of documents which are created actually are more more like a recommended practice. So there's something that's, you know, it's like a set of best practices um, and that, that's much less stringent, but it's also quite flexible and uh, it, it might be enough, right? It might be, it might be more than enough to make a problem better in a way that is a significant step forward. And sometimes these, these documents can be upgraded over time to more, um, more stringent uh, criteria, especially as maybe a technology evolves or the general understanding of a problem space advances. Very cool. It's, you know, IEEE is such a, such a, like a behemoth that I've known about for like forever. We were, we were even talking about before we started recording how like, I don't know how I know it's called IEEE. I just, it's like, it's always existed to me. It's like this brand um, in technology that is, is everywhere. And it's so cool to now understand about how it's, I didn't, I wasn't even aware that it's grassroots. It didn't surprise me as soon as you said that it doesn't surprise me that any of our listeners can create a four to five page document and start the process to creating, you know, to co-authoring their own, uh, certificate. Um, but it's really cool to hear that and to know it now. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so thank you for that. Um, so then, yeah, so I guess kind of, I started to ask this question a while ago and then I took us off on a different tangent, but how do we, how do we, in your view, 
come up with standards or regula- regulations that allow us to, to make the most of capabilities and avoid like the, the biggest issues. I mean, is this it? Is this a process? Is like, is this the, you know, coming up with these kinds of international standards? I mean, I guess all the IEEE stuff, that's a corporation has to self-regulate, I guess. Or does it end up, does the IEEE also then end up advising like government legislation, that kind of thing? To some extent, sometimes um, governments tend to sort of look over the shoulder of standard development organizations. Um, often because regulation takes it takes time. It takes time to to correctly develop policy. Usually, it's not going to be feasible to regulate something that's that's less than two years old at, at a bare minimum. You know, as a new advancement or capability. Standards development organizations tend to be more at the forefront because. Uh, well, it's led by general industry experts who want to to contribute to those kinds of initiatives. And I think that it's possible for standards to become soft law as well if regulators say, hmm, this is a good way of doing things. So government tenders, et cetera, you know, we're going to say that it must comply to this kind of specification. So often these things do end up through a roundabout way, ending up um, included within within regulations. Cool, yeah. And so I, I guess, where do you feel like we are today getting the processes right around AI ethics today, AI safety in the future? So we, are, we talked earlier about how it seems like the same kinds of things can be done today um, to prevent the present AI ethics issues as well as the future AI safety issues. And so, you know, where are we getting it right? And where where do we need work? I'm pleased that <clears throat> that I'm pleased that we've moved past principles because, you know, there's like 200 different AI ethics principles out there in the world. And principles are good in the sense that they are usually timeless. For example, the Pelian policing principles are about 200 years old, but they're still valid today. They're principles like, you know, policing should be done with the consent and cooperation of the community, things like that. And even though policing and forensics has changed enormously in two centuries, the general principles are still uh, very, very valid. Problem is, boiling down principles into something actionable is is challenging. You know, you have to create some sort of a rubric around that to to benchmark or implement things. And that's that's where we are now. We finally have standards and certifications for how we apply technology in a way which is less likely to be troublesome in various ways. And I think that's that's a significant step forward because industry can no longer just shrug and say uh, that's you know that's up to, up to the regulators. Regulators, please regulate us, right? Um, that's a cop out. That's a cop out because there are good standards and certifications that can be already implemented today and should be, and likely will be mandated in the very near future. Nice. Okay. So basically, it's having action being taken more broadly is kind of the next <laughs> the next step. It's like 
we already have a pretty decent understanding of what policies we need. And it's, yeah, the, um, it's the propagation of those policies into action uh, more and more widely across the board. Cool. Yes. Well, that is, that's a pretty reassuring assessment from someone who's on the ground seeing this stuff all the time. That, uh, yeah, it's, that, it's essentially, it's, it's, it's an adoption issue at the moment. You know, we have the good stuff, but either people aren't aware of it or their priorities at the moment are about dealing with an AI arms race um, mm -hmm. to the point where uh, it's, it's not something that's, that's top of mind for them. So given this positivity, and we're kind of, uh, we're back to back here with uh, positive um, future of AI episodes because, uh, the, well, the preceding uh, Tuesday, so we, we release episodes every Tuesday, every Friday, and the Tuesday episodes tend to be longer. They always have guests. Uh, Fridays are shorter. Sometimes it's just me, but sometimes we have guests on those too. But anyway, the, so the uh, you're a, a big Tuesday episode, and the preceding big Tuesday episode was with Professor Blake Richards of Mila in Montreal, and he was also he's optimistic about AI alignment, um, and uh, so yeah, so this is great. Back to back, I'm getting lots of. <laughs> positivity uh allowing me to sleep uh well at night despite being uh an ai entrepreneur myself um so i you know when i'm feeling optimistic like this something that gets me really excited is the idea of ai bringing us to or closer to a utopia as a human society so the kind of stuff that you see in Star Trek, the next generation <laughs> where, you know, there, there's no risk of violence. Um, there's, you know, access to education for everyone. Uh, everyone, you know, people feel safe. People are nourished. Um, people have a sense of purpose. Um, and so, yeah, this is really exciting for me. It seems like it's it's something that's within reach in our lifetimes, and um, it's something that I strive for, and I think probably a, a lot of our listeners are striving for. Yes, and yeah, it's something that you've talked about as well. So um, we have we have an opportunity to to reach for a second enlightenment, in a sense. Mm -hmm. I mean. The first industrial revolution was about creating stuff. <laughs> and we got really, really good at making stuff, right? Producing lots of things quickly and efficiently and uniformly. And with that, we have largely, for most people in most parts of the world, we've solved for the first bottom two rungs of Maslow's pyramid. So food and shelter and increasingly security and things like that, we got pretty good at, at solving for those needs. But what we haven't industrialized the meeting of needs is love and belonging, is you know, self-actualization, right? How do, you, how do you solve for those in our civilization? Read a self-help book, right? You know, good luck. Maybe see a therapist. I don't know, right? But we don't have good answers for that. What I believe that AI can do for us is to industrialize the meeting of those higher needs. 
to help us to be better versions of ourselves, to steer us towards actions which are more adaptive, which lead to happiness over a long period of time, can steer us away from sabotaging a relationship and help us to understand each other better, right? Today, we have technologies that can translate between German and Swahili for free, 24 hours a day, right? Surely, we can translate between different values, different perspectives, right? We can discover ways in which we are more alike than we thought, because sometimes we end up talking past each other, right? Because sometimes words mean different things to different people. The machines can help us to see eye to eye. And even to understand the ways in which we're different, but that that's a good thing, that that strengthens the world and it, it you know, makes a richer, better world if, if people do have these differences because it means that we can rely on each other to help solve different problems in different ways. I believe that if it's possible to sidestep the supernormal stimuli of these AI relationships, if we move from what my pal Dan Fagella calls moving from AI sirens to AI muses, right? These relationships are not just designed to seduce and distract us, but actually to, to build us up, to lead us towards eudaimonia, right? The, the, the good life, right? Which is doing important work with excellent people, essentially. That could, that could uplift the human spirit. That could take us to being those kinds of, you know, better angels of our nature, you know? The way that the people in Star Trek Next Generation are generally chill, they're not uh, they're not jerks, generally. They're not neurotic. They have their heads screwed on. And, you know, we can be more like those people, right? We can be, we can be calm and brave and thoughtful and reasoned. And machines might help to get us there. That was so beautifully said and so inspiring. And, it, you know, going back to my contemporary experience of the closest thing that I have to that, which again is kind of like those email reviews in GPT-4. It absolutely, I think I've talked about this on air before, but not in this episode, is that I come away from the that kind of feedback, from that kind of interaction with GPT-4 better at communicating with people too, to people that I manage, um, to even just, you know, people that I have these you know, you have these completely transactional relationships with like, you know, picking up my laundry from the laundromat and they've made a mistake. And if I have been recently getting this kind of great positive feedback from GPT-4, I'm more likely to come into that interaction with like, you know, my sock is missing from the laundry, but like, it's okay. Like, <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, finding a way to communicate even, you know, con constructive criticisms in a way where the person receiving it uh, feels better about themselves and, and feels empowered. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, kind of the early taste we're getting from these systems where a lot of alignment work has, <laughs> they tried to put a lot of alignment and ethics work into these kinds of systems like GPT-4. So, yeah, it seems like we could really be going in the right direction. Um, 
and yeah, so you have lots of uh, papers that I'll, I'll link to in the show notes related to this or, or blog posts related to this as well. So for example, um, in a blog post, you mentioned that technology can free us from the saddest aspects of the human condition. Um, so maybe you kind of already touched on those with Maslow and self-actualization, but if there's anything else on that particular blog post that you want to address, uh, go for it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think what I touched upon about machines helping to stop us from like texting our ex or, you know, sending that like drunk and angry email to the boss or something, you know, or, or if we've had a difficult day to stop us from reaching for the ice cream at the back of the freezer, you know, um, to find healthier outlets to sublimate our various emotional shenanigans. I think that's, that's one way that, that machines can help us. Right. And that's what a good friend or parent or, or partner is able to do. They're able to hold space for us and listen to our rants and, you know, even admonish us if, if, if we're, if we're swinging the lead, you know, um, tell us to pull ourselves together, perhaps if that's necessary too. I think that hopefully machines will be able to, to provide that for us. The problem is that maybe they'll provide it better than, than any other human can. And that might have repercussions. Yeah. Yeah. Tying back to that thread from earlier. Yeah. Already, uh, people are having a fantastic experience with uh, with getting counseling of various kinds from from AI systems like GPT four, whatever. And the nice thing is that it's next to free, and it's available twenty four hours a day. If you're having a dark night of the soul at three thirty in the morning, you can chat to Jeep, and Jeep will listen. Jeep is there for you. Um, hopefully, hopefully, it, you know, it's it's not the five percent of of t- the time where something goes wrong, and it you know it says, oh yeah, here's how to make a noose, you know. Um, but the great thing is, these systems they have a bunch of different ways of um, they understand internal family systems, or they understand cognitive you know, behavioral therapy, they, they, it, it might be rudimentary compared to a qualified psychotherapist, but it's cheap, it's accessible. And the strange thing is that psychotherapists tell me that actually clients come into them disappointed because they expect a dyad, a backwards and forth conversation between the uh, the psychotherapist and the, the patient or client. And in fact, it's not always like that. Like sometimes you're spilling your guts and the psychotherapist just sits there with their hands folded in their lap in the chair and they look and they watch and they listen and they don't say a thing and it's very frustrating. <laughs> Whereas with a, with a machine, you're always getting that back and forth, you see? And so sometimes people actually prefer dealing with a machine than dealing with a human altogether. Mm. And I think that's a telling vision of perhaps where things might be going and some of the, the caveats that we should, we should chew on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, great points there. Um, another uh, paper that you wrote, so that one was a blog post. Well, I'll, I'll include a link to, in the show notes on that saddest aspects of human condition one. Uh, another um, 
piece that you wrote, this one is a paper. Um, so this one was called Welfare Without Taxation. In it, you propose using revenues from AI and autonomous production to fund a universal basic income. Um, yeah, do you think that this economic model could work alongside the kind of um, capitalism-driven and free market-driven approach that we have today, or would it be? Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so my my musing there is that universal basic income in general is. Well, it's a bit, bit of a perpetual motion machine in the sense that, it, you know, you, you might be trying to trying to get get energy out of something that there's, you know, there's simply not enough energy in the system to do. However, um, what if instead of a state providing universal basic income, it was AI corporations generating profit by providing services? or selling products, perhaps even with some human employees to do the meet and greets and things in meet space that are, are needed. But that, that AI corporation, because it's, it doesn't have much in, in the way of overheads and it doesn't necessarily have to appease shareholders, it can instead be a source of dividends, right? To people who need it. And so it might be that the future is a form of capitalism, hopefully a cuddly, um, socially aware, externality inclusive uh, kind of capitalism that, that minds its P's and Q's, but that where basically all of business is done by machines and we receive dividends and you know, the world just kind of works. I don't know if that's feasible, but to me, it seems more feasible than the idea of, of you know, tax and spend and relying on a state. I do think that that could be one path towards uh, a sort of utopia where machines produce stuff for us and we kind of sit back and sip red wine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it, I, as I kind of alluded to as we started talking about this utopia stuff, I have totally sipped the Kool-Aid. And uh, I, I buy into it. I, I think it's possible. And I think it's possible uh, in the not too distant future, at least a lot of aspects of automation. And yeah, we have to rethink yeah, how society is structured. And I think a universal basic income could be a big part of that. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, these, these autonomous organizations, these autonomous corporations, they are a game changer when it comes to mutual societies when it comes to charitable societies because the overheads are so minimal things that only work at large economies of scale when there's humans involved can now be done on a neighborhood scale right because the the overheads are so little if it's all being being organized by machines and so that means that all kinds of nonprofits or all kinds of other kinds of mutual aid types of organizations can now be done feasibly. And so that's going to have a major impact on how social welfare is, is, is done within society. And, you know, it might mean that you might prefer a kind of AI charity to support you rather than seeking aid off a state, for example. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, and I'm I'm optimistic, and this conversation has made me feel even more so. <laughs> um, 
I could literally go on for hours. This has been an incredibly fascinating conversation. And we we got into like a few percent <laughs> of all of the topics that um, that we had lined up for you as potential things that we could cover. So um, hopefully we can catch up again in the future and dig into some more of these episodes, uh, into some more of these topics and uh, some more that will have evolved further. Uh, maybe we can do that episode from <laughs> a simulated pub uh, <laughs> and have all of our, our listeners there with us. Um, uh, but before I let you go now, uh, do you have a book recommendation for our audience? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I would, if you're interested in AI alignment and uh, helping to align human and machine interests and understanding, there's a very nice book called The Alignment Problem, does what it says on the tin, by Brian Christian. So I recommend people um, have a go at that. And I'm just looking at my bookshelf here. Uh, if you're interested in fiction, there's an interesting book called Gnomon, that's with a G, G-N-O-M-O-N, by uh, Nick Harkaway, which is, a, which is a super cool, super cool read. Nice. Yeah, that's the... Uh... The Greek root of knowledge, I think, is like gnosis is like to know, I think. Absolutely. Uh, That's correct. Yes. And yeah. So this is some kind of, this is like a noun variant on that. Exactly. A sort of knowledge daimon. Yes, indeed. Ah, daimon. <laughs> uh, diabolical. Um, awesome. And I have no doubt that tons of our listeners are going to want to be able to follow your thoughts between this episode and our future fully interactive 3D rendered simulation episode with you. <laughs> <laughs> so between now and then, what's the best way to follow you? Sure. Uh, you'll find me and my writings and papers and such at nellwatson.com. That's November Echo Lima Lima Watson.com. Nice. It's the first time that we've had, I don't know exactly how you describe, what are the, like those like kind of, what, what I don't know what the how, how you describe it when you have that like Zulu foxtrot <laughs> <laughs> NATO phonetic alphabet the NATO phonetic alphabet yes <laughs> exactly and uh, no one has done that on air in hundreds of episodes but it could imagine scenarios where it is helpful even for my own name and website I should be doing that uh, so that's a great idea thank you Nell <laughs> um, brilliant well thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a mind-bending and wonderful experience. Such a delight. Thank you so much, Nell, and hope to catch you again soon. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure to, to join. Thank you. Is Nell incredible or what? In today's episode, she filled us in on AI ethics and how it's concerned with present-day issues such as fairness and privacy, while AI safety is more forward-looking and concerned with issues such as the alignment of machines with human goals. She talked about how we are entering the phase of personal AI, wherein AI systems collect data from individual humans across many systems and are able to form intimate feeling relationships with us. She also talked about how up next will be the phase of corporate AI, in which distinct AI agents will drive cultural and commercial changes independently of humans. She talked about how through the IEEE GET program, anyone can submit a four to five page proposal to develop a new standard such as an AI standard, and how the first renaissance provided the bottom rungs of Maslow's hierarchy of needs to many on this planet, such as covering our physical needs and providing safety, while if we get the standards and policies right, 
AI could bring about a second renaissance that covers us all the way up to the top self-actualization rung of Maslow's Pyramid. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Nell's social media profiles, as well as my own, at superdatascience.com 731. Special thanks to Profits of AI, the agency that recommended Nell as a speaker today, and that also represents the renowned Ben Gertzel, who was our guest back in episode number 697, and many other AI profits. Uh, thanks to my colleagues at Nebula, of course, as well, for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Silvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another glorious episode for us today. For enabling this super team to create this free podcast for you, we are deeply grateful to our sponsors. You can support this show by checking out our sponsors' links, which are in the show notes. Otherwise, please share, review, subscribe, and all that good stuff. But most importantly, just keep on tuning in. I'm so grateful to have you listening, and I hope I can continue to make episodes you love for years and years to come. Until next time, keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.